The Barbican, past, present and future, a dauntingly large subject. To set the tone, let's start with just a minute of film from 1969, as two earnest narrators ponder in quasi-Socratic dialogue the future of the city. I don't know. Times change, I admit. People too, I suppose. But an art centre in the city? That's going a bit far, isn't it? Oh, I know the theatre's going to be a marvellous building with the most modern equipment and its own drama school. I know all that. And a great concert hall with yet another school and even more students. A library, probably a cinema, and an art gallery. All I'm asking is, are we going to see a fair return? A fair return. <laughs> that depends on how you look at it, but I think so. You see, the art center is simply one part of the whole concept, which couldn't truly flourish without the others. Together, they'll make not just a place to live, but a fuller way of life. That extract from the film Barbican 1969, with music by Elizabeth Lutyens, no less, sums up what I want to begin to explore today, the question of how the Barbican Arts Centre came to be, what it has evolved to be today, and what it can be in the future. And the film gives us there, I think, a continuing motto for that narrative, a fuller way of life. I'll be concentrating on the past because through these months of lockdown I've had the chance to look back at some of the origins of the Barbican project in preparation for our 40th anniversary next year with the great help of the London Metropolitan Archives. This is a first take of those results. If you ask the question, why was the Barbican built? The answer is both very simple and very complex. On the simplest level, it was created from the devastation of the Blitz in order to ensure that the City of London Corporation had a future. The vanishing residential population of the square mile posed an existential threat to the survival of the corporation with its independent governance and its long traditions, for there was a serious possibility in the post-war years that without residents and voters, there might be a move to incorporate the city into the London County Council. As we know, in London, the city had been among the most severely damaged of all areas. St Paul's escaped destruction uh, and its overgrown surroundings became a lunchtime haunt for city workers who, at that point, were not expected to work from home. But the buildings around and to the north of St Paul's had been comprehensively destroyed, where it was said one could walk for over half a mile without passing a single standing structure. The basic question then facing the city was whether to rebuild the area on the existing street plan or to attempt a much more radical reimagining of the area. This was a debate paralleled in many British cities after the war, but it had also been a much earlier debate in the city after the Great Fire of 1666. This was Christopher Wren's idealistic proposal for a totally redrawn city of London after the fire, full of clear outlines and wide boulevards, but because of land ownership issues and much else, we know it never happened. 
and hence the city retains its winding alleys and hidden gems, cheek by jowl with its soaring skyscrapers. After the Second World War, a concern around evident about many new city developments was whether those who were to live there actually wanted to be there in new tower blocks rather than in old terrace streets. Here is old Cripplegate. This area of the city, seen here in the famous Agus map of 1633, had been reduced from a population of 14,000 in 1851 to a population of just 48 a century later. So public consent here was less of a factor. It was the vision of the corporation that would be the determining element. In the indispensable city volume of the buildings of England, Nicholas Pevsner and Simon Bradley write confidently of, quote, the city's readiness to finance the costly new housing, schools and buildings for the arts, which did not falter in the quarter century from conception to completion, close quote. That is a very, very generous interpretation of the long and fraught process which then unfolded. From the point of view of the arts, the complexities are even more subtle. It would be wrong, though it makes a powerful narrative, to say that the creation of an international arts centre was part of the core concept of the Barbican from the beginning. In fact, the idea of providing world-class cultural amenities took a long time to become embedded in the thinking and planning of the scheme. But eventually, the commitment of the city did ensure that the Barbican, as a unique residential estate, housed a magnificent collection of venues for culture and education, a utopian vision of living with the arts at its core. How on earth did that happen? Well, as early as July 1952, the Public Health Committee of the Corporation was asked by the City's Court of Common Council to consider and report on the serious effects of the decrease of the resident population of the city. The redoubtable figure of Eric Wilkins, then chairman of that committee, had raised the spectre of the city losing its MP and was determined to see off any threat to the corporation. He became the leading, inexhaustible advocate for the Barbican as we know it. There were other powerful interest groups. The informal new Barbican committee campaigned for the more commercial development of the area. And the London County Council, which had acquired formal planning powers over the area in the post-war Town and Country Planning Act, was also active. By October 1954, the new Barbican Committee had sponsored this gleaming futuristic plan by architects Serge Cadley, William Whitfield and Patrick Horsborough. Though this was rejected, it was influential on future plans as a comprehensive scheme for the area. These, remember, were heady days for urban planning and the growth of cultural venues and festivals, including the creation of art centres, was a widespread phenomenon. In this period, the wartime Council for the Encouragement of Music and the Arts became the Arts Council in 1945. The Edinburgh Festival, the Aldborough Festival, and the 1951 Festival of Britain were all signs of this post-war renaissance. 
But more prosaically, the tensions of the early years of designing the Barbican development weren't really around the arts. They were rather between the pressures on the one hand for major residential development and on the other for the provision of commercial office buildings that would earn income. Any echo there of recent debates about the use of city office space? In both the City and the London County Council, there were progressive views and traditionalist approaches vying for dominance. Already after the City's unimaginative planning officer had permitted, as Lionel Isha puts it, some fast movers to erect, luckily not on sites of major importance, old hat buildings of quite incredible ugliness. Well, I won't illustrate them. The LCC Architects Department, on the other hand, were committed modernists, especially interested in pedestrian traffic segregation. The city and the LCC needed to come together in planning the new Route 11, a wide road running along the south of the Blitz site, which you can see on the left of this slide, it was to be a series of boldly angled 18-storey tower blocks of offices linked by walkways connected by bridges over the roadway. This concept could have been extended to the whole Barbican area, and this early model shows a planned commercial development over on the Aldersgate side proposed by Charles Claw, which never happened. Eric Wilkins had other ideas, and he wanted to prioritise residential development. The architect Geoffrey Powell had recently won an open competition to design the new Golden Lane Estate in the northern part of the Bits area, in those days just beyond the city, and as a result had formed a new architectural practice with his colleagues Peter, always known as Joe Chamberlain, and Christoph Bonn. Golden Lane had shown the city's commitment to providing accessible, imaginative new housing, and the colourful designs there created a stir. Chamberlain, Powell and Bonn first produced a scheme for the whole Barbican area in June 1955, including possible recreation spaces, a small exhibition hall, six public houses, where did they go, and four restaurants and a new building for the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, whose existing premises in John Carpenter Street were becoming dilapidated. Having, as they rather quaintly put it, quote, given some thought to the possibility of providing for mental recreation, they considered the inclusion of, for instance, a concert hall, a theatre or a cinema, which, although ideal, could not be justified commercially. The new Barbican Committee, in alliance with the LCC, were not ready to agree with all this cultural stuff and proposed an alternative scheme for warehousing, industrial and residential development, shopping and schools. Eric Wilkins fought hard against this proposal, notably in a fierce address to the court on the 3rd of November 1955, denouncing the scheme as purely a project of the London County Council. Since when, my Lord Mayor, have we wanted the London County Council to ascertain our needs or plan for them? Barbican must be developed for the well-being of the City of London, whose interest we are here to represent. Wilkins's arguments won the day, 
the Court of Common Council turned the proposed scheme down on the grounds of overdevelopment and excessive commercial provision. Chamberlain, Powell and Bonn produced their first key proposal in 1956. Barbican redevelopment with this slightly, I think one could agree, embryonic plan on the cover. So this was the first glimmer of interest in the arts in the all-encompassing Barbican scheme. Where was this balance between commercial gain and residential development going to end up? The decisive intervention came from Duncan Sands, Minister of Housing and Local Government, in a well-known letter to the city on the 28th of August 1956. I am convinced that there would be advantages in creating in the city a genuine residential neighbourhood incorporating schools, shops, open spaces and other amenities, even if this means foregoing a more remunerative return for the land. So the drift was now clear, the tide had turned against over-commercial use and towards the development of a new civilised mode of living. There was strong external support from forward-looking commentators such as Nicholas Pevsner, who in his 1955 Reith Lectures, The Englishness of English Art, had already cited the proposed Barbican development as one example of, quote, things that still need support, support against ignorance and short-sightedness, and against the stupid prejudice that such newfangled ideas as would give England modern and worthy town and city centres must be outlandish. It has, I hope, been demonstrated how thoroughly inlandish they are. Pepsner's judgment prevailed even if his vocabulary did not. Chamberlain, Powell and Bond's initial plans looked back to history as well as forward, containing echoes of the landscape gardens of previous centuries, and including a running track around a wooded area almost exactly on the eventual site of the City of London Girls' School. The emphasis was on quiet and sense of seclusion, which should be characteristic of a residential neighbourhood. Shops were now omitted. But you can see how the outline of the scheme defined by the axes of the existing Silk Street, Moor Lane and Fourth Street, remained absolutely constant through the process of, of design. Um, they looked for models on the leafy squares and the inns of court in London, even inspired in a quieter time than now by Trafalgar Square. Um, I'm not at all competent to be the expert on the architectural style that underlies the Barbican. That's a whole other discussion to be had. But these are among the visual references that they gave in their plans from London. And these are some of the continental references that they sent as their much-valued Christmas cards over this period we begin to see the style emerging. It was at this point that the idea of facilities for the arts quickly assumed a more central role in the scheme. The Guildhall School would need performance spaces. The residents would need local entertainment. And from the provision of some small venues which were essentially to serve the residents and the school, the ambition rapidly grew. 
In September 1957, a report to the court by a special committee led to the creation in October 1957 of the Barbican Committee, which met for the first time on the 17th of October and elected Wilkins as chairman. For those of you who love city meetings as I do, here is the historic minute of that first meeting. The committee gave new terms of reference to Chamberlain, Powell and Bonn, and on the 21st of November, they accepted the proposal to develop their plans without them as yet being appointed architects. There was to be a theatre and a concert hall to serve the public as well as the Guildhall School, quote, provided it could be arranged without detriment to the schools, both the theatre and the concert hall could be used by professional companies and orchestras. The die was cast. And if there was a moment when the concept of the Barbican Arts Centre was firmly established, it was in April 1959 when this handsome Barbican redevelopment report by the architects was submitted to the Court of Common Council. This covered the whole residential development and included initial thoughts on the arts venues. Now, at this point, the main theatre and concert hall venues were to be above ground, and a lending library and a gallery were added to the scheme. But much was still in doubt. The, the cover of this elegant report shows this road across the lake, uh, which the city engineer stubbornly insisted on, potentially severely damaging the arts centre site. There it is on the model from 1959, and you can see how obtrusive it would have been. After many arguments and a visit from the Minister of Housing and Local Government who said it was profoundly wrong, the road was finally excluded from the scheme. And that may, I'm not sure about this, have related to the decision to retain Beach Street, formerly the street called Barbican, as an east-west traffic route under the podium something which created an unpleasantly polluted urban space destined for traffic only, but which was naturally and increasingly used by pedestrians. It may have also contributed to the eternal problems of finding the Barbican difficult to navigate. There were now to be conference facilities for 350 to 400 people and an imaginative but unrealised concept to move the historic coal exchange from Lower Thames Street to form part of the Guildhall School. I love this and the thought that all those uh, rooms could be practice rooms for individual students is attractive, uh, though I wager that insulating them from each other would have been far more expensive than building them from scratch. The move didn't take place, and that building was sadly demolished in 1962. But it's important to recognise from all this that the architects were very aware of the past. Here they are in their suits this time, demonstrating the model of the whole urban estate extending over to Golden Lane. Um, the resonance of creating great landscapes, great open spaces with water, had profoundly historic roots. They were not destructive modernists. They were the new urban visions. And St Giles Cripplegate always played a central role in their picture of the estate. 
Now, it was this 1959 plan which, according to enduring Barbican myths, was accepted by the Court of Common Council by a single vote. Uh, although there is plenty in the records that shows the strong dissension among the court and the constant opposition to the scheme as a whole by some members, I'm sorry to say that I have found no record of a division showing that it was voted through by that tiny margin. It's true that opposing motions were defeated by larger margins. Still, it has, I think, the single vote story, a mythic truth, and what it means is the Barbican only just happened. All this created major new challenges as the thinking around the arts began to expand. By November 1962, it was accepted that the concert hall and theatre now had to be independent because of full-time occupancy by professional companies. They were not just to be adjuncts to the Guildhall School, but public venues in their own right. In March 1963, the city turned to Anthony Besch, a well-known opera producer and director, to produce a report with recommendations. Besch had already made a major tour of the United States and had been able to visit a wide range of opera companies and conservatoires. He therefore proposed visits to Europe and the USA with Chamberlain, took advice from a wide range of artistic figures, and his circumspect and detailed report, delivered on the 1st of May 1964, still makes fascinating reading. Because Besch argued that the size of both the concert hall and the theatre should be increased to make them economically more viable. The plan before the city envisaged a hall of 1,300 and a theatre of 800. He estimated their running cost as £13,250 a year. Besch claimed that an increase of size to a hall of 2,000 and a theatre of 1,500 would, hey presto, return a surplus of £4,750. We can only observe that hope, as in so many artistic budgeting matters, sprang eternal. His convincing point about the concert hall was that, quote, the greatest anomaly in London's musical life is that not one of its four leading orchestras has ever possessed a home of its own. Our London orchestras are compelled to lead a peripatetic existence, performing and rehearsing wherever they can find room. He recognised, however, that a considerable annual subsidy is necessary. In effect, the city would be undertaking the role of patron. Besch received detailed proposals from the London Philharmonic and the London Symphony Orchestras. For the theatre, the net was cast wider to include ballet and opera as well as drama. The clear preference here was for the Royal Shakespeare Company, which didn't have a permanent London home, and detailed discussions took place with Peter Hall, then its director. The RSC management was in the middle of negotiations around a project in Notting Hill and couldn't at that point commit. But Besch said clearly that if this company could be established in the city, the Barbican Theatre would become a centre of national and cosmopolitan importance. For the concert hall, the LSO's entrepreneurial spirit won the day. According to Richard Morrison's lively history of the orchestra, the challenge brought out the best 
in managing director Ernest Fleischmann and player chairman Barry Tuckwell, who, quote, after a weekend of brainstorming in a proverbial smoke-filled room, had cooked up a brilliantly optimistic, not to say pie-in-the-sky, dossier about the orchestra. The LSO would assume complete artistic and financial control of the hall and pay the corporation a rent somehow related to the as-yet unfixed construction costs of the hall, uh, an opera very difficult for the city to refuse. Agreement with the RSC was reached in February 65 and with the LSO in March 66. The new developments meant that a far larger proportion of the estate was to be devoted to the arts with the significant consequence that the main venues had to be taken underground, a major factor in their future design. So just to backtrack a moment, here's the original plan for hall and theatre. Where did this interesting shape of the hall come from? From these drawings by theatre consultant Richard Southern, brought in very early, who felt that you could combine a globe-type theatre with a concert hall in the round inspired by the Berlin Philharmonie. That was modified after Besch with the enlarged revision that fixed underground the shapes that we now have. On the 25th of April 1968, Chamberlain, Powell and Bond submitted their report, Barbican Arts Centre 1968, to the court. Quote, It will be appreciated that in essence, as individual elements of the Arts Centre have grown in size, they've inevitably get generated a major increase in the amount of space needed to accommodate the movement of a large number of visitors to the Arts Centre. Or as one writer put it, by 1968, the design for the art centre had grown like a cuckoo. The architects now stated boldly that the Barbican Arts Centre forms the point of focus of the whole residential development, a statement worth remembering, and consideration was given to car parking facilities and pedestrian routes in from the car parks and the underground stations with the sadly unfulfilled crucial promise it is hoped that escalator collections direct between platform and podium levels will be constructed at both Aldersgate, now Barbican, and Moorgate stations. Now, the visualizations of the newly enlarged spaces and of the arts centre as a whole in the report were really rather warm, fluffy and moody, especially in these atmospheric sketches from the report of the, the view across the lake, the interior of the concert hall, and the inside of the theatre. A far cry from the reality of the fantastically complex scheme revealed in these sectional plans, which had the four floor numbers uh, uh, numbered in all sorts of complex ways, 47, 57, 68, 78, and so on. An experienced administrator for the centre was brought in, the ebullient Henry Wrong, but the problems of commitment from the city came to a critical point when the building contract for the arts centre itself had to be let in 1971 uh, at a meeting on the 15th of April for £14.4 million. 
I think the City Corporation was just beginning to appreciate the hair-raising financial commitment it was making, which indeed turned out to be a figure far greater than that. Fortunately, the redoubtable Eric Wilkins was still on hand to argue the case. As he put it, my Lord Mayor, I'm thankful to have lived for this day. He had to deal with the fact that the city's coal, corn and rates finance committee had not concurred with the contractor's proposition and what he refers to as the adverse vote by the narrow majority of one of the policy and parliamentary committee. Well, perhaps that negative vote is another source of the one-vote myth. Who knows? But in arguing to the court, Wilkins could overturn those decisions. And his address that day captures a recurring theme of the city's deliberations on culture. I know there are still some who maintain that the city is no place for the arts. I have many friends, and they are my friends, who have consistently opposed and even denigrated the whole Barbican project. I respect their right to be so critical. It would be a sad day for this honourable court if there were no opposition. The City of London is a tale of two cities. Firstly, that intricate complex of banking, finance, insurance and exchange, whose expertise and integrity produce those invisible exports without which this country would be bankrupt. Those who see but one city would have covered the Barbican's acres with banks and offices and done so in spite of successive governments' advice to the contrary. But there is another city. This other city has its own and no less important role. Its concern is for the whole of man, his mind and spirit and physical well-being. A living city, the Corporation of London, can be proud indeed of its record. Well, it was uh, reportedly the longest meeting ever of the Court of Common Council, or is that another city myth? Henry Wrong took refuge in prayer and avoided the proceedings. At the end of the day, the motion to let the construction contract was passed by 78 to 59 votes. The Barbican Arts Centre was on its way. Uh, in 1972, the Queen unveiled the foundation stone of what was by then described as the Barbican Centre for Arts and Conferences, uh, a mark of the evolving commercialisation of the scheme. And up it went in fits and starts, thanks to the dedicated work of thousands of contractors and builders who had to work in sometimes dreadful conditions. It was presided over by Henry Wrong's genial heir. He got the place built, in spite of his considerable lack of sympathy for the architects, but with his deep commitment to the ideals of the arts. Eventually, as we know, the Queen opened it in 1982, declaring the Barbican to be, in words no doubt drafted by Henry Wrong himself, one of the wonders of the world. The Barbican suffered initially from three things. First, the fact that brutalism as a style was in a deep dip of unpopularity at that point. Second, the fact that to some, the days of huge art centre buildings seemed to be over. 
And third, because of the lack of planned connectivity, it was dogged by so many jibes about its inaccessibility that it even used it itself as an advertising device, as in, if Helen Mirren can find the Barbican, she'll be appearing with the RSC in, and featured in this lovely Mark Boxer Smirnoff vodka ad. Another vital fact to remember here is that the wonderfully imagined high walks were never connected as originally intended to the rest of the city. How on earth do you get up there? Eventually, that lack of direction was addressed with what I have always regarded as a desperate expedient. The famous yellow line on the floor, surely an admission of wayfinding failure. So, what has that bargain centre now become? This is not the moment to explore the twists and turns of all its life over 40 years, but I can warmly recommend to you a book that will appear next year from Batsford, including these themes across all the art forms and activities there. But it can be said that thanks to the continuing belief of the corporation and the commitment of successive management teams at the centre, it has become a truly international innovative, inclusive arts centre that has moved decisively with the times. It's been helped on the one hand by a huge shift in public sentiment towards architectural modernism and brutalism, especially when as well delivered and as highly specced as the Barbican is, in which every detail is beautifully considered and designed, and on the other by the increasingly powerful belief of the importance of the arts in our lives and the window of understanding that it gives onto the wider world. Over the dynamic period of John Tusser and Graham Sheffield from 1995, resources from the city were comparatively plenty, and imagination was given free reign to renew the building, making its signage far clearer and less cluttered. The departure of the RSC in this period, turbulent and divisive though it was at the time, gave the possibility of a whole new strand of theatre programming, which Sheffield, Louise Jeffries and Tony Racklin desires to show the most adventurous and exciting theatrical thinking of the day. Audiences in this country first got to know the work of Ivo van Hover at the Barbican, Thomas Ostermeyer, our own talent like Deborah Warner and Katie Mitchell, and reached out beyond the walls to engage with local venues. The Arts Gallery only became part of the centre administratively in 2001. It had previously belonged to the Libraries Department, and since then has pursued its very distinctive path by showing work highlighting architecture, design and photography, with shows that really match the building and brings the art forms together, as here with dance in the gallery. And here, acrobatics from Circa, meet Debussy's string quartet in the theatre. Developing a free curve gallery as a place for adventurous new commissions has been a big success, though no one quite predicted the hours of queues that would line around the Barbican foyers to get into Rain Room, an experience where pouring water dried up around you as you walked, thanks to the wonders of technology. But we even got dance in there too. In the last decade and more, 
we have progressively opened up the centre to new influences, especially through our work with creative learning in collaboration with the Guildhall School, working beyond the walls in East London and elsewhere to bring a new generation to the arts through outreach. We've given our main stage to young people from East London for their own powerful show, Unleashed, supported by our own artistic teams and winning nightly standing ovations. And events that take the spirit of the Barbican beyond the walls as just one example among many, who could forget this experience of Dalston House on a disused lot in London? Uh, an ingenious visual illusion created by a facade lying on the ground with a huge angled mirror looking down on it. As you can imagine, an instant hit on Instagram. In the concert hall, the LSO has maintained its residency for 40 years under a succession of great conductors, while the Barbican has complemented its music making with a range of international orchestras and associate ensembles mixing classical and the wider repertory with new work and adventure. And cinema, too, has become progressively more diverse, especially since the opening of our new cinemas on Beach Street, which have opened out our facilities and, like the Guildhall School's Milton Court building in Silk Street, have made them visible to the passerby. But there is still so much more to do in our search for visibility, porosity and welcome. I think we have established over the last few years a few principles as absolutely central to the success of an arts venue today and the way that they are changing and moving on. The first and most vital is diversity, equality and inclusion, broadening our scope in shows like our Jean-Michel Basquiat exhibition, which attracted a fantastic new audience to the centre, reflecting London as it really is. We realise that this has now become a hugely sensitive and difficult issue as we move forward, especially over the last year, and is the focus of much immediate attention for us. The next is brand, a real conviction and a distinctive character in how we talk to the public. We've developed this over time, but the Barbican look is still absolutely individual and we need to let it move on with the times, if, even if this means changing the look of some aspects of the building. The third is participation, including young people in the process of making work through initiatives like the Barbican Box and our ensemble Drumworks, now an independent entity thanks to our original support. The fourth is internationalism, the welcome that we provide to so many from around the globe at a time when the UK is becoming determinately, but let's hope not inevitably, less international. It is vital for the Barbican to keep those worldwide connections flourishing. And the fifth is collaboration. Here working with Waltham Forest Council and many other partners on the Walthamstow Garden Party, a genuine community event for all. Collaboration and partnership have become ever more important. This is not just about the Barbican doing things on its own. 
The most important development in recent times has been the city's creation of Culture Mile in the northwest of the city, a collaboration which will uh, stretch from the new Museum of London here, uh, past the reuse of Spithfield Market, past the um, not marked there, opening of the other side of Farringdon uh, on the Elizabeth Line, just next to Barbican Tube, through the now zero emission zone of Beach Street to Barbican and the Guildhall School, all within a concentrated walk of a few minutes. Uh, we can animate outdoor spaces, create content in the spaces between our buildings, and even turn to thrilling artistic purpose the drab spaces of Beach Street. That was Tunnel Visions, an inspiring and sophisticated light show with contemporary classical music that filled the Beach Street Tunnel to celebrate Culture Mile. What Culture Mile now aims to achieve is the creation in this area of a business improvement district of a unique kind, one which is culture-led and brings commerce and culture together in harmony. As we approach a 40th anniversary, which will hopefully mark the emergence from this period of the pandemic, a period which has heightened inequality and has devastated the lives of so many practicing artists and creative figures, the challenges to the arts are more profound than ever. And the question for us is, what should the Barbican become? And what are the needs of this new world? There is so much in the practice and the content of the arts today that wasn't thought of by the tremendous imagination of Chamberlain, Powell and Bonn 40 years and more ago. Spaces for learning, spaces for communities, spaces for families to feel valued and welcome into the family of the Barbican and the city. Commercial spaces in harmony with the building because we need ever more to support ourselves with income. Sorry, missed something there. Hence, our new shop and our wonderful conservatory, which goes right back to the early vision of the architects as a place for reflection. There are many needs for sustainability, for climate change and better energy use that were not at the forefront of our thinking 40 years ago, but are now urgent priorities for us. We need to keep our venues and our spaces up to date for digital delivery and transmission, as well as the live event, and ensure that they are at the forefront of international thinking in these areas. What should the relationship be between the Arts Centre and our partners on the Barbican residential estate and the wider public realm of the area with all the developments that will take place there in the coming years? So that is the aim of the Barbican Renewal Project, a huge and important project which we'll be announcing during this month. Watch this space. By providing this openness, this welcome and this inclusivity, the Barbican can help the city to realise its aims for a coming together of culture and commerce, which has been heralded by the Lord Mayor's task force as part of Culture Mile, working with all these recent visitors to the newly reopened Barbican Centre. Chairman, Lord Mayor, Lady Mayoress, uh, sheriffs, 
in a new alliance for the whole of the city that doesn't separate the arts off into a different world, but makes them, in the phrase that we heard at the very start in the film, part of a fuller way of life. This will be a new phase in the history of the Barbican Centre as a fortress no more, but connected and integrated within the society it aims to serve. I think and hope that it will be one in total harmony with the visionary aspirations of those who created the Barbican 40 years ago. Thanks for listening. So, Nicholas, thank you very much for an absolutely fascinating lecture. For someone who knows the Barbican well, I learned so much. Um, and it's fascinating to hear about your announcement, which no doubt we will all look forward to. Uh, my name is Simon Thurley. I'm the provost of Gresham College, and uh, I've been harvesting the questions um, for Sir Nicholas here. Um, and I will just um, relay those. So the first question I have here is a very interesting one, which is, has the Barbican model been replicated in other international cities? Um, that, is, that is an interesting one, and I would say not in the precise way that the Barbican came together. Um, the way it has been replicated is of um, expansive centres for all the art forms together. And I can think of a famous example in Singapore, for instance, where those are, are gathered on the waterfront in the Esplanade Centre. But the thing about the Barbican that makes it unique is the combination of residential and artistic activities. Uh, and in that factor, I would be hard put to it to think of somewhere that has as extensive a collection of arts venues. You can think of places that bring arts venues together, for instance, the Lincoln Center in New York, but there is no immediate residential as part of that development. So I think to that extent, the Barbican remains rather wonderfully unique. Thank you. Um, Here's a, a very relevant uh, question, and you did just touch on it, but I think it's, a, it's well worth asking, which is how will the Barbican adapt to climate change over the next 40 years? Yeah, that is at the top of our list in terms of uh, scoping out the intentions of the Barbican Renewal Project. And you may know that the city has already made a very substantial commitment, uh, including a financial commitment, to advancing climate change over those years. We, I mentioned sustainability, but clearly, as you can imagine, the Barbican is something that eats energy, and we simply have to look at more efficient and more effective ways of running the building in a sustainable way, and that is going to be something which we'll look at. For instance, the wonderful conservatory that we have at the, at the top of the building. That was one of Chamberlain Powell and Bond's wonderful inspirations uh, for those of you who have been there. It's an incredibly welcoming space. It was built in order to cover up the concrete bulk of the flying system of the theatre from below. So to that extent, it was pragmatic. But as you can imagine, with its glass roof, 
which has not been replaced in recent times, uh, energy flows out of it. And we need to find a way of investing in it so that uh, recirculation and all those things that help to uh, make a, a venue sustainable can be put in place over a period of time. This is not something that is going to happen overnight, but it is going to be a declaration of intent for the next 40 years. Very interesting. A big challenge for you, I suspect. Um, now, here's a cheeky question from Tom, um, who's asking, what's the budget for renewal? Ah, <laughs> um, that is a, a matter of negotiation between uh, us all in the city at the moment and will be established um, when we get to the matter of um, choosing a design team, consultants, uh, with whom to work on this project. Because as you can imagine, it will be a complex project to develop so that is why I use those three words, watch this space. <laughs> very good, very good politician's answer. Um, I don't understand this question, but I think you probably will. Um, this is uh, Jane, who says, interesting to see the proposed bridge in 1959, was it? Yes. But was not a similar proposal floated in the recent initiative to market the Arts Centre? Um, it's important to realise that the bridge proposed in 1959 was a road bridge. It was to take cars right through the heart of the centre. In fact, just where these poor people are standing here, who would have come across here. Um, over, over the years, I, I've seen many ideas floated, uh, and one of the thoughts about the connectivity of the Barbican and improving the connectivity um, in the absence of the high walks being connected, was to um, experiment with the possibility of whether there was another way to cross the lake besides going up two floors. But I can absolutely confidently say that that is not part of any uh, current scheme. That links in with a question that I like here. Having... Having been the chief executive of English Heritage when the Barbican Centre was listed, and yes. therefore having a small uh, role in it, um, the question here is uh, whether you feel the listing of the Barbican Centre is a plaudit or a problem. Ah, well, that's, that's really... I um, have, as I hope has come across in this talk such a profound admiration for the building as it was conceived that I think we absolutely applaud the listing. Uh, the fact is, and, and you, Simon, will know this from all your experience, listing a building does not mean it cannot change. Mm. And so I think that's what we're really going to be looking at here, the balance between keeping the original ideals of the architectural inspiration of the Barbican and moving it forward with the sort of facilities that um, audiences now expect, that artists now expect as well, because so much has changed in the practice of the arts over that period of time. Now, um, uh, already in the Barbican, 
you remember when I showed that illustration of uh, level two signage, that was part of a really quite significant um, move to improve the interior of the building by architects AHMM. And I think we feel and people generally feel that that was a positive improvement within the spirit of the listing. So that is absolutely what we'll be looking at going forward. An exciting challenge, actually. Yes, yes. I think. Right, the last question is, um, how do you anticipate the balance between the residents and the public? Well, I think it mean, perhaps the, the, the question means, how do you balance the... the, the um, uh, the, the requirements yes. of the residents. No, I, um, yeah. I, I understand the questions, and um, the answer is that we have very good relationships with the residents. We talk to their representatives constantly about what is going on, anything that is likely to impinge on them. But I think it's fair to say that we manage the operations of the centre on a day-to-day -day basis so that they do not impact. Uh, more than they absolutely need to on the um, quiet and peacefulness of the residential estate. And balancing those things is always going to be a challenge. And we know that uh, residents do not mind if occasion on occasions and with forewarning there is lively activity uh, around the estate because it is such a marvellous um, performance space as well as a residential estate. But we're absolutely committed to a constant dialogue with the residents to ensure that what we do is a win-win situation for everybody, improving the urban realm of the whole area and making the place a better place for everyone to enjoy. Sir Nicholas, um, you have just given the Sir Thomas Gresham lecture, uh, a lecture um, from a college that was founded by a man who had an extraordinary vision for what culture could do in the square mile. And what's so exciting for us today is to have someone who carries on that tradition by leading the Barbican Centre, and by the sound of it, will continue to lead the Barbican Centre to represent and support the arts and culture in the Square Mile. And I think on behalf of the college and all of the people who've been listening this evening, we'd like to thank you very much for an excellent, illuminating, fascinating lecture. Thank you Thank very you, much. Simon. It's been a pleasure.